Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from around the world who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. As many of you know, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, a city famously and infamously known for its history of Black-white relations. And while folks from China have been in the Memphis area for over 150 years, Asian Americans currently only make up about 2% of our local population and less than 1% when I was growing up. I rarely saw people who look like me, and I learned very little Asian American history in school. It was difficult for me to know where I belonged or if I belonged at all. As it turns out, this is a very common Asian American experience. This morning, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Lee, the author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. In it, she talks more about the Asian American experience of rage, of shame, but also how we can turn those feelings into positive social change and connections among and between one another. Dr. Julia Lee is a Korean-American writer, scholar, and teacher. She is the author of Our Gang, A Racial History of Little Rascals, and The American Slave Narrative in the Victorian Novel, as well as the novel By the Book, which is published under the pen name Julia Sonborn. Julia received her PhD in English and American Language and Literature from Harvard University, and she is currently an associate professor of English at Loyola Marymount University, where she teaches Black and Asian American literature. She has also written for The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, and Zocalo Public Square. Good morning, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes, you know, as soon as I saw the title of this book, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, I was completely hooked. And I knew I had to read this book and hopefully have you as a guest on the show because just the title itself just spoke so much to me. So I am beyond excited that we're able to have this conversation today. Thank you. I mean, that's really what I was hoping was that, you know, when I came out with this book that um, readers would see themselves or feel like, oh my gosh, finally a book that is speaking to things that I have been feeling or, um, you know, trying to figure out for myself. So thanks for having me on. Yes. I mean, and that is exactly what this book does. At first, I definitely feel seen in these pages and just that power of of seeing yourself in a story. Um, And so that definitely resonated with me. And in so many of the different anecdotes throughout the book, I was like, oh, yeah, like I, I was like right there with you. And so just thank you so much for writing this. And as you even kind of say in the book, like writing ourselves into history. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I had to continue to remind myself while I was writing um, is continuing to remind myself who the ideal reader was, because I think so often, you know, especially when you are raised in this country where the default is usually a white person or a white reader or a white audience, you unwittingly write to that person. And so, so much of the time I had to remind myself, no, 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 don't write to that default reader, write to the person like yourself, who hasn't been centered and who hasn't seen themselves being addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that, I mean, it's sad to say that it was more difficult to do than I thought it would be, because I think, again, all of us have been so indoctrinated and so brainwashed, really, that um, mm-hmm. it's so easy to slip into the way we've been trained to speak. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love throughout the book, you use different Korean words, and there's no explanation, right? Like readers can e- either Google it, or use the context clues um, to understand what it is that you're referring to. So even small things like that, I think, speak to exactly what you're talking about. Like, who is the ideal reader? Um, If your ideal reader is other Asian Americans, other Korean Americans, there are certain words that you wouldn't have to explain because there is that shared knowledge. Yes. I mean, that's something that I learned from other writers who have done something similar. Um, You know, writers who come from Spanish-speaking families and won't gloss or won't define Spanish words because the way they speak to their families or to their friends is intermixing both English and Spanish words. And I just thought that that was so refreshing and so 
wonderful because, you know, it is a common language and, you know, what does it take for somebody if they are not familiar with the word to just Google it, you know, just <laughs> take a second and do that little of little bit of extra work that those of us who are people of color always have to do that extra work. So for mm-hmm. once you do the extra work. Um, so yeah. yeah, so it was important for me not to italicize a lot of those words either because I didn't want them to see seem quote unquote foreign mm-hmm. um, because they're not foreign to somebody like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that idea because foreign, foreign to whom? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's also something you talk about in the book, particularly around Asian American invisibility. Um, and you ask this question, invisible to whom? And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that idea of visibility and invisibility as it relates to Asian Americans. Yeah. You know, I think that Asian Americans, there are so many of us feel like we exist in this place of almost existential invisibility that, you know, we're not really counted as people of color sometimes. It's like, oh, well, you're not black, you're not brown, you're, um, you know, you you fall in this no man's land. And at the same time, you're not white. You know, you may be white adjacent and enjoy some privileges of being adjacent to whiteness, but we are still clearly visibly different. And as you can see through this spate of anti-Asian hate, you know, our adjacency to whiteness is not going to protect us from being hate crimed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it it it's hard because you feel like you don't know what camp you belong into, and so you're just forgotten or further marginalized. Um, and you know, I used to rage against that sense of invisibility and always want to speak up, but felt like I was being quieted, not just by American culture, but by my own Korean culture, mm-hmm. um, which values, you know, harmony and don't cause a stink and just try to fall into line. Um, but there was a quote by Toni Morrison that I refer to in my book about, you know, how invisibility is really a matter of context that, yeah, some people can't see me, but a lot of people can see me and we see each other. And so I have to focus on that and flick off, you know, the white person looking over my shoulder or telling me that I don't count, just flick him off my shoulder. And then I'm free Mm -hmm. because he may not see me, but a lot of other people can see me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love through this book that you're helping others be seen, continue that process of seeing, but also to feel as though you are seen. What I really enjoyed about the book is how you weave in um, a lot of different current events, but also historical events, which I think are important in helping Asian Americans to be seen both among one another, right? Because there's a lot of Asian American history that we as Asian Americans don't learn, um, let alone Black and white Americans. So I also really appreciated you bringing in um, some key events to help situate some of the different experiences you are having kind of in this broader context. Um, Because like you said, that context piece really matters. Um, As I was thinking, reading through your book, I was you know, thinking about the context in which I grew up in, right? So we're thinking about Memphis, a very black, white city. Uh, and so again, just not feeling very seen or not feeling very visible. Um, and so I really resonated with those stories in which people were seeing you through a very narrow lens and the ways that you were able to fight back. Yeah, no, I think it's really true. I mean, you know, a lot of the reason why I write about, you know, the Asian American context, historical context is because I was learning it as I wrote as well, because, you know, I didn't take an Asian American lit class until graduate school, really. And I didn't get any exposure really to Asian American history growing up. And Mm -hmm. so part of me was piecing it together on my own through my own reading and later on through some classes and just self-education. And I know so many of my peers, you know, people my age, I'm, you know, in my 40s. And so many of us, if we didn't have the luxury of taking an Asian American studies class in, say, college, don't have any idea really of the history of Asians in America. Um, We might have a little bit more access to African American history, and that is such an important and pivotal history to this country. Um, But not being able to figure out where we fit, um, in the context of that history, I think is a loss for all of us. Um, I think I as well, like showing how the Asian American movement was so indebted to 
um, the Black Power movement and how really from its inception, it's always been in cooperation and in solidarity with one another. And so seeing what we're trying to do now with in terms of Asian American um, Asian American visibility, that it's not a separate thing, that it is in collaboration and in solidarity with our fellow peoples of color. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that was something else that I really appreciate about your book was that you continue to tell that story and give those historical but also contemporary examples of interracial cooperation, of multiracial solidarity. Again, a story that is often glossed over, a history that is often not fully told um, for very specific reasons, right? We can think about um, all the ways in which the white supremacist culture that we live in would not want us to know that history of interracial cooperation cooperation and solidarity. So I like that you pulled in all those different examples as well throughout the book. Um, when you're talking about how oftentimes as Asian Americans or just in Americans broadly, we don't learn Asian American history, um, but we often do learn a lot about Black history. And often seeing ourselves through um, those joint struggles or through even similar struggles. So I like how throughout the book, you're also nodding to different Black authors that really helped form kind of your sense of voice and also your perspective um, in this country. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those writers that were really pivotal to how you were thinking through maybe this book, but also kind of in coming to an Asian American consciousness. Yeah, you know, I... I really am so indebted to um, and inspired by African-American writers. Um, I ended up working on a dissertation in graduate school that um, talked or that focused a lot on Frederick Douglass and these early um, slave narrators, slave narrative writers, um, and how they basically, you know, wrote their way to freedom, wrote their way into existence with their slave narratives. Um, And I always found these accounts by Black writers to finally put into words the kind of alienation, isolation, marginalization, and anger that I felt. Um, you know, certainly there's there's been an explosion in Asian American writings more recently, but, you know, when I was growing up, there really wasn't a lot. And the little that there was fell into this, you know, kind of digestible, more easily digestible kind of immigrant assimilation narrative. And I could not find words for the frustration and rage I felt, except when I read somebody like James Baldwin, or except when I read something by Toni Morrison. I mean, some of these great, great writers, and they were talking about specific historical trauma that faced Black Americans from enslavement to the present. And even though that was not my particular history, I could so um, identify with the feelings of invisibility and um, anger at not being part of this so-called American dream and being villainized or scapegoated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, growing up when I was 15, um, I grew up in Los Angeles and um, that was when the LA uprising, the LA riots occurred. And that became a really critical moment in my development, because this was a moment where in the media, especially I think on the West Coast, really um, suggested it was a Black Korean conflict, which suddenly made me feel like, but wait a second, you know, these Black writers who I found so profound, you're telling me that Korean Americans are being pitted against them and actually we're enemies, that we're not on the same side. Um, And that triggered a real moment of crisis for me because where did I belong? I am absolutely Korean. My face is Korean. My parents were liquor store and then fried chicken restaurant owners whose store was burned in the LA uprising. And yet I could, I very much empathized with the, the situation of of black Americans and the anti-black hatred that they were facing. So part of the next several decades of my life was just trying to figure out, you know, why are we being pitted against each other when really we are allies? And as you mentioned, I mean, the discovery I made was that this is that white supremacist sleight of hand that is trying to fool us into seeing one another as adversaries rather than as allies. I mean, that is, we have to stand together because otherwise that's how, you know, we're divided and then we fall, we lose. Um, So we have to stand together. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We have to stand together. You know, as you were talking about um, some of the writers that really inspired you or that gave you a lens to understand your own experience, um, it made me think too of being, you know, in high school. And I think a friend of mine gave me or was reading this book of like African-American literature. And I think it was poetry. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember reading the works of Donnell Lee and really feeling that same like, wow, okay, somebody else feels this way, or there is a, a language for this, or, you know, people are already thinking through this, because I didn't have, um, there wasn't a, a large Asian American population in my city, of course, we're not learning Asian American history um, in, in school. And so to have, again, that language through poetry, through the words of Black writers, was also very crucial to my own development as well. Um, in the book, you say to be an Asian person in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of shame almost all of the time. Of course, an homage to James Baldwin, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk more about shame. One section of your book is even headlined under this title of shame. Could you talk about that in regards to the Asian American experience? Yeah, you know, I the the book opens with a section that's called rage and rage and anger is something that, you know, is so easy for me to articulate. I think it's something that all of us can identify with. The second section, which is like the messy middle, you know, where you're trying to figure out, okay, now what do I do with these feelings? Um, I think shame is is I would argue one of the most difficult emotions to come to grips with because again, shame is something you want to hide and you don't want to talk about. And one of the things I talk I mention is that shame is this fear of disconnection. It's feeling that you are alone, that you are an outcast, that no one else feels this way. And I think that Asian Americans, again, this, the, the experience of being Asian American in this country is to constantly feel one is in a state of shame because Nobody else can identify with you. You're not visible. You don't belong to black. You don't belong to white. Nobody, um, you know, we don't have this mass awareness and therefore we fall through the gaps. And, you know, I also push against, you know, the, the stereotype that, oh, well, you know, Asians, they suffer from shame because they're such a collective culture. And that's why, you know, my, I had a therapist who once told me, you know, the reason why you're so, you know, unhappy or depressed or anxious is because you've always been shamed by your mother. And I remember just pushing up against that and being like, dude, that's too easy. That's just too glib a way of interpreting or explaining why I feel the way I do. Because the truth is that to be an Asian person in this country is to be shamed by American culture. I mean, it's not just my parents who are shaming me. It's our entire society that, you know, mocks us in jokes or makes fun of our accents or tells us that we're the easy butt of, you know, every, you know, everybody can can clown on Asian people and it's no big deal. I mean, why do you think so many of us are so filled with shame? And then even, you know, seeing connections with like the experience of black Americans can be an experience of intense shame because certainly we understand that we did not have the long and tortured history of black Americans in this country. And we do not want to presume that we know what that's like. And so we also feel disconnected there sort of like, Oh, you know, I'm ashamed because I know my experience is not the black experience and therefore I cannot speak about it. I cannot articulate my own racial pain and shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, writing the book was a way to pierce through that veil of shame and to be like, no, 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 I know there are other people out there who feel the way I do and that we should not feel ashamed mm -hmm. because there are a lot of us in this situation. Yeah. I mean, what you said about that feeling of shame, those feelings of disconnection, feelings of something is wrong with me, that I'm inherently bad. And again, like so many of us feel that way because of the way race and racism are constructed in our society, not because of something that we've done or something that we haven't done. But if we don't understand that historical context and then how it's playing out today, then we can start to internalize that individually and feel like, 
it's me, right? It's not not the system, but that it is actually something that's wrong with me. Yeah, uh, and that's how shame works is that you internalize it. Like all the anger I felt, I was like, well, I'm not allowed to feel this anger. People say I shouldn't be angry, that I'm lucky to be in this country and I'm lucky I'm not treated as badly as Black Americans and therefore I need to internalize. And then you turn it within and then you find yourself just falling apart inside because you have no outlet no method of expression. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how racism works. It makes you think you're the problem, not the system. Mm, Yeah. Let's take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll get more into how you work through these feelings of shame. This is let's grab coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and we are here this morning chatting with Dr. Julia Lee, author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. Now, Julia, before the break, we were talking about this feeling of shame um, that's often a key shared experience of being Asian in America. Um, But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you started working through this shame. Yeah. I mean, I think that it it was a long, long process. And in in many ways, I'm still working through it because Mm -hmm. it's so easy to fall back into that sense of humiliation or embarrassment. Um, I mean, I think that, as I said, shame is the fear of disconnection. So the more you can connect with others and find empathy, you know, find others who have experienced the same thing you have and who can voice it and you know, hold your hand or just say, I hear you, I see you. I mean, for me, it's been about finding colleagues and friends and um, even now readers. I mean, I can't tell you how heartwarming it is to get emails from readers who I've never met before, but who tell me I read your book and I went through the exact same thing. And now I feel like I'm not alone. So that's a huge step out of racial shame. Um, The other thing that I have found really useful is something that one of my friends who is a Black feminist scholar um, and professor, you know, she was talking to me on the phone and was telling me that she had a Chinese American graduate student who came to her office hours and was really apologetic and full of shame because she said that, you know, when she was growing up in Florida, that she and her friends all wished that they were white And she felt so horrible about this. And my friend stopped her and said, no, 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 no. You did not want to be white. Nobody wants to be white. You wanted to be human. And when my friend said this to me over the phone, I just, I mean, I really had to take a deep breath because this was something that I'd always been so ashamed of is that I had tried so hard to assimilate into whiteness and to be white. And my friend was telling me, no, you should not be ashamed of that. What you were trying to do was you wanted to be human. And in this country, sadly, because we live in a white supremacist country, the only people who get to experience the fullness of humanity are white people. And so you didn't want to be white. You wanted to be human. You wanted to be treated like white people got to be treated. And when she when when she made that clear to me, I just thought, wow, I suddenly felt this release of so many years of shame. You know, it wasn't that I was, you know, embarrassed or ashamed of being Korean or ashamed of not being white. It was just that I I had that very human desire to be treated like a human being and it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I and, and this is one of the anecdotes that you do share in the book and when I read that, I even had to write in the margins of my book um, some yeah. expletives that I won't say on the <laughs> air. But yes, that feeling of like, wow, like this is it. Like this is exactly it, that we have a desire to be human, to be seen as human, to be to experience the full range of emotions and abilities and freedoms and rights and responsibilities as human beings. And in this country, that is historically um, and continually through whiteness. Um, And we can think about how citizenship has been established in this country, you know, and how Asian Americans have been firmly outside of who could be considered a citizen, um, you know, to see that historical connection. But again, that idea of 
it's not that people want to be white. It's that people want those privileges and freedoms um, mm. that have been historically and continue to be associated with whiteness. Whiteness, yeah. No, yeah. it's I think a huge burden lifted off my shoulders because, you know, and, and it, it has allowed me not just to forgive myself, but also forgive other people that I see who, you know, it's easy. I talk about how as a kid, you know, I would just denigrate, you know, Asian American, other people of color who I felt like just were trying to be white or were whitewashed or were, you know, just pathetic and want to be. And, and now I feel like now that I'm older, I'm able to pause and be like, okay, you know, I may not like the way that they, you know, treat other people of color or the way they chase certain markers of whiteness or the status that comes with whiteness, but I also have to forgive them because they too are trying to survive in a system in which they are dehumanized. They too are trying to be human in the only way they know how. Um, and that has helped a lot with my sense of anger, you know, and bitterness because I realized that I was doing the same thing and therefore I need to forgive myself as well. Mm, that's so powerful. Like that self-forgiveness. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. I mean, you even spoke earlier about, um, you know, having empathy for others um, as a way to combat, you know, feelings of shame, that fear of disconnection. And I think your book really does that so well in showing your own journey into, you know, releasing the shame, also, you know, questioning your perspective and what you have known to be true. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I really liked about this book. I felt like you were so transparent in these pages of times when you had been judging other people or times when you had, you know, been doing things that you're like, wow, I see now because of the context in which I grew up in because of white supremacy. I understand why I was thinking that way. Um, and I can identify like that's not how I want to continue to think or behave. Um, but to offer us that transparency and that vulnerability, I think is such a gift as readers continue in their own journey of self-forgiveness, but also, you know, creating more connections with other people too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I joke about how like nobody hates me more than me, right? Like I'm a perfectionist, I'm an overachiever, you know, I was it like trained to be this way by my parents and by their immigrant work mentality, um, but also by a country that has taught me that, you know, you have to be twice as good and you have to work twice as hard in order to get half as far. And so, I've absorbed all this and at a certain point, you know, you'll just burn out or you'll flame out or you'll just be, you know, broken physically or mentally. So it's just not sustainable. Um, and one of the things I realized, especially, you know, I have children now, I have a 10 year old and a 13 year old, and it was really difficult during COVID, you know, watching the ways in which they kind of circled the drain um, emotionally, psychologically, like so many people in this country. And it was a moment of recognition for me that I had to stop treating myself so harshly as well, because my, my kids see it, my students see it. They're like, wow, you know, like if I ever messed up, I just told myself I was garbage. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh my God. But in many ways, that was a way in which I started internalizing white supremacy myself. Like I didn't even need somebody to tell me, you know, you suck right? I was telling that to myself every day because that is what I had taught, I had learned, I had to do in order to be seen as human was to be superhuman. And to realize that I didn't even need like some, you know, person out there telling me I suck, that I could just do it to myself was the moment that I was like, oh dear, this is so deep and so intense. And what I want my my kids and my students to know is that, no, you're allowed to be human. You are allowed to be imperfect. You don't have to be twice as good and work twice as hard because I think you, I love you and you are human and you don't have to be superhuman in order to be loved and in order to be treated as a human being. You just, no, you are entitled to humanity. Yes, you are entitled to humanity. I think that's an important reminder because we can forget, right? You talk about in the book um, of this, like being brainwashed, right? And, and, 
you know, becoming disconnected from your own humanity. Um, and in one of uh, the anecdotes that you mentioned, it was actually about Sandra O, oh, who I mm-hmm. absolutely love. And when I think about, you know, when did I first feel seen, you know, on screen, it was her character, Christina Yang in Grey's Anatomy, where I was like, oh, it's an Asian American woman, you know, like me, who is feisty and, and um, you know, twisted right like and also you know has a career and is very focused on that and you know in it you talk about how um she was um uh, reading the part for killing eve another great series right and how she was confused as to what part you know she was supposed to be reading for that she never um could have fathomed that she was reading for the lead and so just speaking about like being brainwashed um and you say in an industry infamous for rejection oh had protected herself by not allowing herself to imagine possibilities that had historically been foreclosed to her Right. It was a survival mechanism. And I remember when I heard that story and I heard her on um, Fresh Air, I think as well with, um, with what is her name? Um, well, whatever I saw her, I listened to her on Fresh Air and, you know, she was telling this story and about how shocked she was. And yeah, you could tell there was also some shame there that she had been so brainwashed by you know, her own marginalization that she did not, she couldn't even imagine herself in the main role of this series. And I remember she had internalized the white gaze because you have to internalize the white gaze if you're going to survive as a person of color in this society. And so she's in film and television, incredibly white industry. And so to survive, she had to internalize how the white world saw her. And she always knew that the white world saw her as a secondary or tertiary character, the sidekick. And so, you know, I think there was a sense of shame, like, I can't believe how brainwashed I was. But, you know, I wanted to reach out through the radio, you know, when I heard her interview and say, it was not your fault. You did this to survive. The culture taught you to see yourself as a minor character. And how sad is that, that you're indoctrinated into thinking you're a minor character in your own life? Mm. I mean, that's devastating. Um, So I'm glad, you know, and I think that was a moment of awakening and recognition for her. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so powerful to hear it, hear that, right? That idea or that confession of like, I'd never, I couldn't even imagine myself in that role because I think it does speak to something that we do feel as Asian Americans or even folks of color where you have relegated yourself in certain ways to that secondary role and not even imagining certain possibilities. I'm wondering for you, um, you know, as an academic, were there similar ways that you could, you maybe reflect back and think of, oh, wow, I wasn't even imagining certain possibilities for me because of the history of, you know, the discipline or the history of academia, or maybe in some other area in your life where now you realize like, wow, there are certain ways that I wasn't even allowing myself to imagine. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's so, yeah, like damaging because I think that, you know, I think representation is important, more important than, you know, people might even realize because if you don't see it, you can't imagine it. I mean, I think all of us are kind of literal thinkers in that way, especially when you're a kid, you know, you don't see yourself on television. You can't imagine yourself on television. I mean, I grew up in LA and one of the stories in my book is about how, you know, I totally wanted to be a child actor, right? Like I watched all those stupid sitcoms and I thought I was going to be Punky Brewster and, you know, I, and, and yet I (laughs) very early on, I was like, wow, nobody looks like me on TV. And that's because nobody wants to look at somebody like me and I have no role. And the only roles that are available to me are, you know, the comic sidekick or the joke. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I don't, I mean, my mother would have disowned me if I if I became an actor or actress, which is why I have so much respect for all these Asian American actors who went against family disapproval to pursue their dream. But I had disqualified myself from even those professions because I thought, you know, who wants to look at me? Nobody. Um, you know, and so I think a lot of Asian Americans and along with, you know, some family pressures or families concern that, you know, certain fields are more welcoming to us than others. You know, it's why we're pushed into more technical fields. 
fields where there is larger amounts of Asian representation or where, you know, our face is not going to be an impediment in the way that it is um, in terms of like acting and things like that. I mean, I really wanted to be a writer. I mean, that was always my dream. I, well, actually, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. But again, similar situation. I'm like, I don't really see any Asian American ballet dancers. I mean, there are some more now, but it's also a very white um, industry or profession. And so, you know, I always loved writing, but I definitely saw that there was a certain kind of story that the publishing industry wanted to see out of an Asian American writer. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't have any real, um, what do you call it? Like role models, you know? I mean, I think growing up, the only one I could think of was um, the Joy Luck Club. Um, yeah, Amy Tan. Amy Tan was the really the only one. And then, you know, her movie came out and it was like, oh my gosh, this is a huge step for Asian American representation. And then nothing, nothing for decades. Right. And, you know, as a young person, you're not stupid. You're watching this and you're like, okay, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And, you know, I was also an immigrant kid. So it was very much like, you need to start making money. You need to start paying back your student loans. You need to start supporting your parents because they don't have a retirement fund. You're the retirement fund. And so, you know, you find yourself pushed into certain professions, ones that make money, ones that have job security. Um, ones that have health insurance. I mean, so much of, I realized so much of my book is about just looking for health insurance and, and taking jobs just for the health insurance. Um, so yeah, I mean, I went into academia because I thought that it was a way to write mm-hmm. while also being paid and getting health insurance. And I hadn't realized just how difficult it is to get a job as an academic. And then I also was naive about academia being itself much like other systems of power in this country. You know, I thought, oh, a group of people who are motivated by like intellectual pursuits and the pursuit of knowledge would be more open-minded and inclusive. And actually, no, they're just like other systems of power. And for a long time, I felt like they were not going to let me in. I could not get a job. I did not feel like I was wanted. I was constantly being told that the things I was interested in, specifically race and literature, were unimportant or not rigorous. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was, I mean, I I do, I still sometimes feel like it's a miracle that I have a job. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a miracle I was able to publish this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, so many things that you just said, I'm like so many questions now um, because, you know, at being an academic as well, also specializing in race and ethnicity, you know, you said something um, rigorous, right? This idea that yes. your work isn't rigorous, which is that code word for it, it's not the status quo, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, for scholars of color, you know, rigorous is a word that we know very oh, well. It is a dog whistle word, rigorous and also objective. Those are the two words that seem like they're not, you know, they're, they're color blind words, but they're very loaded um, words. And it usually means, oh, you know, you don't meet a so-called objective meaning white standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always, I get like a rash every time people use those terms around me. Yeah, absolutely. Because like you said, those are dog whistle words in academia, uh, ways to exclude people, ways to devalue their work. Um, And I was kind of laughing, you know, when you said like, oh, you know, people who are interested in ideas and intellectual pursuits, you know, surely this will be a safer space. I know, I know. And it's just, (laughs) I mean, it's so bad. And it's almost worse because these people think that they're so enlightened and brilliant. And it's like, no, you're actually <laughs> just as bad. Right? Yes. And I'm in, uh, you know, sociology. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm sure. Know. Right. You guys are like the rigorous social side, right? Like I'm in, right. I'm in like English. It's like, you know, <laughs> Yeah. So I'm like, I, I, I just felt you so much when you said that, but you know, something else that you do mention in the book is like also releasing yourself from these standards of 
academic writing, right? Deciding that you're going to write a book like Biting the Hand, right? Or even write whatever else you might write, write it in a way where it's like, okay, who is my audience? What are the words that I would use? What is the tone that I would use in my writing and detaching yourself from kind of these academic standards? Um, And I see more scholars of color, you know, using the voice that they're most comfortable with in their writing. And even the books that I've seen kind of recently come out written by scholars of color that are, again, saying like, you know, the audience that I want to talk to isn't the academic audience, isn't necessarily a white audience. Um, Like I want to talk to folks who have experienced the world like I've experienced it. And so I'm actually very excited um, to see more scholars of color, particularly, you know, use the voice and write in the voice in which they want to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that's also so elitist and and exclusive is this idea that, you know, you're only qualified to speak if you talk in a certain register, which mm-hmm. again has historically been used to exclude the most marginalized people. And, you know, I, I talk about how I wanted to write a book that my parents could read and that my students could read and that my friends could read because I have a lot of friends who are not in academia. And Honestly, I hate reading academic writing. I think it's so boring and so soulless. Oh, (laughs) totally soulless. And yet, you know, going to grad school, you're told, well, if you want to be taken seriously, this is the way you need to write. And, you know, one of my advisors, um, Henry Louis Gates Jr., I mean, he writes for a public audience and he is very much a public intellectual. And I remember when I was a graduate student, you know, sort of asking him, you know, how he was able to do that, especially since so many of his colleagues at Harvard, you know, were still writing in a very elitist register and did not have the reach that he did. And he was saying that, you know, his first book was an academic literary theory book that was aimed at the intellectual elite. And he said, yeah, I wrote that book so I could get tenure. Right. Like to to try to get through that gate. And then once he got tenure, he was like, I'm going to write whatever I feel like. And I remember that sense of being so impressed that, yeah, I mean, right. Like sometimes you have to write in this register or you have to write this way in order to get past certain gates, such as to get a job, such as to get tenure. But then once you have that, why not? write what you want to write instead of what a certain group of people want you to write. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I I hope you also join the, (laughs) join the group of academics who are writing for a wider audience. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Because when I think about, you know, like my first book, I was like, oh my gosh, people read this. Don't read that. Like, that's so terrible. Like no one read that. Um, But the book that I have coming out um, next year, I did very much. I was like, I want to write the book that I would want to read. And very similar to you saying like, this is an act of like writing myself into existence and writing folks like me into existence. And so what is the voice that I want to use to convey that? And also like, I want it to be readable to folks who, you know, just might like to to read, pick up a book and read it, not an academic, yeah. um, because otherwise, like, who are we really talking to, right? Um, uh-huh. Just like what you've done in Biting the Hand, right? Like you, through your writing, it's a connection, like it's a human connection. Like I felt like we were having a conversation and those are the type of books that really help us either understand ourselves better or even understand other folks better, um, not books that are, are written behind all of this job jargon, uh, you know, and that are, you know, that seem very off-putting, but rather books that invite us into a shared experience. Yeah, it should be reciprocal. I talk a lot about reciprocity and about, you know, consent. Like if, you know, if you want to connect with other people, both people have to consent to be in that conversation and it can't just be one-sided. I think teaching has really taught me that because, you know, you could be the biggest egghead in the world. And if you're boring, you know, (laughs) if you're talking in jargon, students are just going to fall asleep literally right in front of you. Oh yeah. And so, right. So, so, so much of, you know, the, the thinking behind biting the hand, you know, I first tried out a lot of these anecdotes and a lot of these lessons with my students, because I was trying to explain to them, 
you know, when I talk about double consciousness, which is a phrase that Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois uses, and, you know, his, his, essay where he writes about it can seem a little bit abstract. And so I try to give examples and, you know, and you really start to see the ways in which telling stories is a way of making something abstract, more tangible and most, more understandable, because all of us have experienced that feeling of double consciousness or this divide between how we see ourselves and then how the white world sees us. And you know, by teaching it to my students and giving them examples and then hearing their examples as well. I mean, I've become a better teacher. I've learned a lot more and I wanted to aim for that same reciprocal exchange in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you definitely did it. I felt like, again, like it was a conversation. So like you said, that reciprocity, that decision, that consent to like, I'm joining this conversation yeah. as well. And it is an exchange. Um, And like I said, as I was reading your book, I'm writing notes and and thinking about like other examples in my own life or even just other connections, you know, to other authors. And so I thought it was very much, you know, that, that open conversation to help us understand what it's like to grow up Asian in black and white America. Uh, Let's take another quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and we're here this morning with Dr. Julia Lee. She's the author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. Uh, Now, Julia, something that really resonated with me um, in the book, at the end, you're actually talking about when you sold the book, Biting the Hands, and you say, I didn't tell my parents right away. I told my friends before I told my parents. I told my sister. I told my husband's parents. I told Twitter, um, but I didn't tell my own parents. And I was like, okay, I feel less guilty about not telling my family. about my book. <laughs> um, and so I don't know, I was just so like of all, everything else that you shared in the book where I was like, oh, I, I, you know, I get this. Like, oh, I had an experience like this too. Um, and then I, I never expected to read this in, in the book, but I was like, okay, I feel way less guilty. Um, I just got the, the, um, cover art for the book and I, I have shared it on Instagram. I have shared it on Twitter. I've shared it on LinkedIn. Um, Like the pre-order link is up. I have shared it everywhere. And I haven't told my dad yet. Like I haven't told, you know, my family yet. Um, And yeah, so, okay. So I I feel Isn't that interesting though? It like never crossed my mind, right? It was like, why would I do that. I don't know. And, but I think that there is something, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of relationship. Um, you know, even after the book came out, you know, I, you know, I would have some book events and I didn't bother inviting my parents because I was like, why would they come? And then my sister was like, Oh, do you want to invite mom? And I was like, I don't know. I, because I just assumed she'd be like, I'd rather take a nap, you know, <laughs> or something like, it's almost like, like just expecting that they're not going to be excited. So why even tell them? Yeah. Um. And, but, you know, I'm almost, you know, I find a, a, a wonderful sort of sense of connection though, with my friends and with you that we're all in that same boat where it's like, well, yeah, that's the way it goes. And, you know, our parents don't necessarily, you know, like, throw a party or open up a bottle of champagne every time we, you know, bring home a good grade. Like that's just not, that's not my scene. That's not the way I was raised, but there are other ways, you know, the quiet gestures and acts of love and sacrifice that encapsulate the kind of love I have for my parents and my parents have for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, you mentioned those quiet acts, those, you know, I want to say small, but not small, but just different ways that parents show their love because you mentioned, um, 
you know, your dad saying like, Hey, I have extra fruit, like come, right. Like that's love. That's consideration. Um, and so I think you writing in these very common experiences into this book does exactly what, you know, you set out to do, which is helping folks feel more seen. I imagine, you know, reading a story that you would have liked to have been able to read when you were younger. Um, but then also building, you know, those connections with folks who aren't Asian American, right. To understand the Asian American experience. Um, because like you mentioned, just as, you know, both of us were, were finding a lens to understand our minoritized racial experience through Black authors, I can imagine for other young people of color who may not be Asian American, but find, again, those similar, that similar voice or that similarity in experience or, or rage or shame um, in this book as well. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it is, the book is about the specificity of the Asian American experience, but, you know, in the last section, I really do try to step back and broaden it to the experience of anybody who has felt marginalized or invisible or isolated, because I think there's so many of us and that we share more in common than we don't share and that, you know, we're more powerful, united um, and so, you know, I talk about how, like, you know, my my story is not particularly unique, right? There's there's actually a lot of people who are like me out there, whether they're Korean American or whether they're the kid of immigrants or whether they are somebody who has a marginalized identity that makes them feel invisible. I mean, I would hope all of them can see some commonality in our shared experiences um, and a way to cross or to to connect across difference to see our common humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so key to see our common humanity. Well, Julia, I want to thank you so much for being here with me this morning. It is such a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you again for Julia Lee for joining us this morning. She is the author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. I truly enjoyed reading this book. I felt like I saw so much of my own experience written into these pages. And we know how important it is to see our experiences reflected back to us, whether that is in a book or on a TV show or in a movie. And so I think people will really enjoy this book. And even if you aren't Asian American, I think it is important for us to be able to put ourselves in other folks shoes to understand what their experience has been like and this book gives you that opportunity to do so well for today's positive note i want to leave you with something that julia said during the course of our conversation um she said shame is fear of disconnection but the more you can connect with one another the more empathy that you can create the more that shame and that fear can dissipate and i love that because Look, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. Shame is that feeling of there's something wrong with me, that feeling of being afraid that we can't have that connection with one another, but we can continue to connect and we can do so through reading a book like Biting the Hand and understanding more about the Asian American experience. We can do that through having conversations with one another and we can do that through the connections that we make here on WYXR. Well, this has been... Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here every Monday morning and I hope that you will join me again next Monday morning. And remember to subscribe in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts so you never miss a conversation.